Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. This is the second part. I tried really hard to get it under 15 minutes, but Adam and I were talking for close to an hour, and I just thought, you know, I could run a 20-something minute episode, but it's just not my style. So breaking it in half, I think I found a natural break in there, and I just want people to have that experience that I enjoy with podcasts of having a chance on your drive time or catching 15 minutes without having to go on and on and on. This is kind of not the rest because there's a lot more that we talked about, but this is the part I thought that was non-duplicative of things I've already talked about or not talked about in a certain way in my podcast. The basketball card fanatic issue where this appeared has been out a while now, so I wanted to give Adam plenty of lead time because it's quite a labor of love to put out a publication. I firsthand know that. So thanks, Adam, and hope you enjoy this and check out Basketball Card Fanatic. There's not this huge amount of stuff to print in basketball when it first came out because you start with 1948 Bowman and you go through 1989 hoops, and that's about six pages total of the whole magazine. But on page 20 and 21, you have the 1984 star set, and then you have the 1986 FLIR set. You probably know where I'm going at this point. One of the acronyms that exists after number 101 and actually the other two Jordan cards from 1984 and all the other cards that had a rookie in 86, 87 but were present in the star set is the XRC. Do you know, was this the first time that XRC had been used? No, my decision, my acronym or whatever, XRC, Extended Rookie Card. I think the first application was Daryl Strawberry, 83 tops extended, and then he had his 84 sets. There had to be some acknowledgement that he'd had cards before 1984 that were legit, mainstream, but not pack-pulled cards. Okay, You had USFL cards, again, not pack-pulled, but a box set that were out there. So how do you explain what Reggie White's true rookie card is? He's got a rookie card in the classic sense of opening up a pack, but he has this other card that's obviously by a legitimate company, Tops, and put out before. Star Company, a little less clear because you could try to say they were a major card company because they were the only licensed basketball card company at the time, but they weren't a major company. Anyway. The XRC aspect seemed to fit, and I've lost no sleep over that because I don't know what the alternative is. The alternative is to say that the Star Company being a nationally distributed set, but not in packs, if that's the rookie card, then the history of the basketball card hoppy would be different because then so, all this run-up of the 86 Fleer Jordan, what would happen there? Because it would be its third-year car. It's not splitting the baby necessarily, but it was a little bit of a hedge that this is a cool card too. I will say this, when a player has a rookie card, an RC and an XRC, they can each kind of take away from the other in terms of where the primary glamour is. And I think we're seeing that now with the star Jordan starting to come up, perhaps somewhat at the expense of the 86, 87 Fleer Jordan. It's just free market forces at work, Adam. I'm not pulling any strings. Whether I say it's an XRC or, again, if it was a regional set, it would be a nothing, like the Nike Jordan. It would just be, oh, that's an early Jordan card. I think it needed to be more than that. There were other examples in other sports that preceded it. So to me, it was consistent with what we'd already decided. I'm hearing there's a precedent set around whether something was pack-pulled. And this was not a pack-pulled card, but it had to have some sort of recognition. I think that's a pretty fair way to say it. There's more to it, but that's the essence of it. What if that pack-inserted qualifier didn't exist and 
the 84 star had that RC at the end of it. How would the hobby be different? Well, it's not about existing. That was the popular perception of the day. Now things have relaxed a bit. The other thing is there, there really aren't enough of them to go around. That's right. If there's 5,000 sets or 7,000 sets or whatever there are, rookie cards ought to be attainable by the average guy. And they ought to be able to go down the corner store and, or the LCS and pick one up. Maybe get it and maybe not when they buy a pack. With the star company, you're buying the team set and it's in there. It's a question of how well it's centered. As time passes, people care a lot less about how the card was originally provided. They don't know. All they know, they flip it over and it says 1984 copyright. What's right. wrong with this? When a card is first created, people care a lot about what the distribution channels were. But at some point, people maybe will still understand that. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Maybe they care, maybe they don't. But they just look at the card. They don't think about the distribution channels. And there's lots of examples. I was there. In fact, I got a phone call from Robert Levin, the Star Company guy, somewhere in the 80s there. And he went, hey, what's this XRC stuff? You know, what? how come these aren't rookie cards? And so we had a amicable conversation. It was amicable on my end. <laughs> he wouldn't even get angry or anything. He said, what'd it take? I said, you're not distributing this in a traditional way. So I'm giving these to distributors and they're getting them to all the hobby shops. I said, I know, but it's just not what people accept as a rookie card, my decision, I'm trying to not so much make an edict is say, this is the sense of what people are doing. Do the what if game. If that would have been an RC right from the beginning, would Star Company still be producing? It is a scary thought. It's so scary. There were a lot of people who didn't have ability to get the Star cards. And that wasn't just on a state by state basis. Growing up in Salt Lake, there's no chance I was ever going to get those. But the FLIR cards. The other problem with the distribution of Star Company, that I don't think people have said this, but you either never saw them or you had a lot of them. That's also not fair. So there were a number of dealers and card shops that had huge stacks of Star Company, the major distributors, all of whom I knew, and they'd have them at their tables for many years. They'd raise the price gradually, but nothing compared to what it is now. And so it was not an even distribution. It was clumpy distribution. There were a few distributors that essentially had the market quasi-cornered. Now, that's mm -hmm. not what rookie cards are supposed to be, power to the people. That was the perception, and that's a legitimate way to think of it, I think. Rookie cards should be attainable. It should be attainable. And not clumpy. I like clumpy. Good. I wish I had a clump. I Me know too. some people <laughs> had some clumps of those. Was keeping track of subscriptions, not sending extra issues, was that a big pain to make sure that was all tracked? It was not a pain because we were not flexible. We had rules and we weren't passing out free copy. If you wanted to subscribe, you'd get them. We'd send you a warning. Hey, your subscription is going to expire if you don't renew. And then if they didn't renew, they didn't keep getting copies. So they pretty quickly figured out, hey, if we don't pay, we don't get it. Or they could go down to the card shop and card shop, same thing with us. If they didn't pay, they didn't get them anymore. And then the collector said, hey, how come we quit taking them? They quit paying their bill. And so then some of them would subscribe. So we made it very deterministics. We didn't want to get a lot of phone calls. We mailed them out and on the same day. I think the Postal Service was not as overtaxed then as now. Pretty reliable delivery and people could count on it. And so it took some of the subjectivity out of it. I wrote the first subscription for a program. It's pretty simple. When do they expire? How much did they pay? What's their address? It was a pretty simple database. Now, over the years, it got a lot more complicated, but we weren't doing heavy promotions or, hey, here's your subscription gift if you buy this. So we were the opposite of Sports Illustrated. No tote bags or anything like that. How many 
I guess, letters, probably would have been emails back in 1990. How many letters were you getting a month from members of the hobby? At our peak, we were getting a million pieces of mail a month. <laughs> mail. We had tubs, 3,000 a day, essentially. They just stacked yeah. up and a lot of med checks in them or surveys or hot list or stuff like that. It was crazy. It's staggering. I used to read them all. You know that? And then it got so crazy, I couldn't even skim them all. We had to have somebody just to open up the mail. Did you have any idea when it started, that's where it would get to? I'm not saying that was just for basketball. That was for all totaled. I know. Yeah. I know. No, I never thought it'd get that big. I didn't aspire to. I just, I wanted to go in the right direction, do the right thing, and then see what the results are. We would just respond to it. From your publishing efforts and authoring efforts, the challenge is doing the master copy. After that, whether it's digital copies or printing copies, that's a different type of labor than the creative process of creating the master copy, the first copy. Whether you're going to sell 500 of them or 500,000, the creative work is in doing that first one. And so that's the way yeah, I looked at it. I want to put out a good product, whether it sells 50,000 or 5,000, I'm going to work on it just as hard. How do you feel about the state of the hobby? I'm hopeful there's so much money pouring in. Smart people are be not betting that prices are going to go up. They're betting that more people are going to enjoy this hobby going forward. The problem in the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s, all those, they were trying to maintain their sales by trying to get more money out of the same wallets. And they'd have 10% less customers the next year, but then they raise prices by 10%. Okay. I hope they don't raise prices. They just are raising new collectors. And I really hope that's going to happen. The other silver lining is that Anybody that comes in now, if they think, hey, this is the greatest thing and prices go up every year, I don't know what they're reading, but that's not true. Prices do not go up every year. A lot of things go up and seemingly don't go down very often. But if people get in now, they're realizing this is a really cool hobby, whether cards go up or down or stay the same. That means they're probably going to stick around. That's what we want. We want them to stick around. What? Would you like to see change in the hobby? Back in the day, I would have answered that by doing something, Adam, not pontificating, but doing something. If I wanted to see something change, I would have moved our company in that direction. I have three big ideas, and my old company needs to do them. And I'm not even going to say what they are. If they don't do them, I'm not going to sell them to the highest bidder. But there are three things that would really help the hobby get to the next level and that my old company could take some initiative and do market leadership. It's in different areas of the hobby that nobody's doing. And we'll see if they want to take that ball and run with it. It's their nickel now, not mine. But it's something I would have bet on. I'd love to see it not be so financially focused. And I'd love to see people who want cards because they want cards rather than people want cards for their end result to be money. The problem is there's an appropriate amount of complexity that draws people into the hobby, and then you go over that and it drives them out.